0: to The Wonder, exploring perspectives, rituals, and observances of modern, naturalistic, earth-revering pagan religious paths. Here are your hosts, Yucca and Mark. Welcome back to The Wonder, science-based paganism. I'm your host, Yucca. And I'm Mark. And today, we're talking about a topic that we've actually never done before, which is books. So we're going to talk about some books that some of them are kind of your more stereotypical pagan books, but mostly we're focusing on the ones that really had a a deep impact on us, where we came out kind of changed after reading them.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, books like movies, like music, like, you know, any kind of creative works, but especially books because they're so dense with ideas can be really transformational experiences in our lives. And, you know, both Yucca and I were talking before we started recording, and there have just been a bunch of these books that really changed the way we saw the world and the way that we thought about things. And so we thought you would be interested in finding out about those. Maybe you want to read them yourself. Yeah.
0: And th- this is not going to be an exhaustive list. These were just ones that we well, were thinking about and going, hmm. Right. As soon as we were t- started talking, Mark mentioned one, which we'll talk about in a moment, that I went... Why didn't I put that on my list? Oh, that should have been there. Right. So, yeah, let's see. Where should we start with this?
1: Well, why don't we start with the one that where we overlapped? Because that's Complexity, which is just a really super interesting book. Mm-hmm. Complexity by Mitchell Waldrop is it's putatively a history of the creation of the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Mm hmm but what a lot of it is really about is an exploration of the creation of complexity science
0: and really understanding what that is Mm -hmm. right it's it's told with the sort of the story but you really get a good sense of what's what's happening right
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and complexity science asks one of the most obvious questions in science which is so obvious that it never occurred to me until I read this book. And so it was kind of mind-blowing when it suddenly occurred to me, yeah, why is that? And <laughs> and the question, of course, is why do complex forms develop? Mm-hmm. Why do things accrete from simpler forms into more complex forms throughout the universe and at every scale we're aware of? Why?
0: Right. and.
1: It's the kind of book where I would read a chapter and then just kind of go skipping around the house, (laughs) super happy, and then come back and read another chapter.
0: Right. And just dealing with, you know, emergence and what is that? Mm -hmm. And how is that, how our world is, is, it just comes out of these simple things acting together and yet we get these incredibly complex systems from it.
1: Right. And we take for granted that combinations of simple things can be completely unrelated in nature to the simple things that they're related to. Like, take water, for example. Water is two two elements that are gaseous at room temperature. But when you combine them in a particular form, what you get is a liquid, water, which is the foundation of all life. Mm -hmm. And there's no particular reason to think that that would be so. All of the properties of oxygen... Or hydrogen are I mean when you mix oxygen and hydrogen together the thing they want to do more than anything else is explode (laughs) right so yeah and what is that burnt hydrogen
0: yeah you get burnt hydrogen and that gives you water what
1: yeah yeah uh huh So. so this whole question of emergent complexity the more you think about it the more wondrous it is um you know why. Does a slowly accumulating disk of gas and dust being pulled in by its own gravity finally reach a certain level of density where kapow, it turns into a star, a completely different emergent property of those simple elements that have gathered in that disk and then function that way for, for billions of years?
0: Mm-hmm. And eventually all of that also leading to things like us. Sure. With brains. Yeah. That lead to minds, right? That, I mean, it's just, it's just boggling.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a really wow book for me when I read it. And I encourage, I encourage everybody to read it. And there's another associated book that that I'll talk about later on in the podcast that I, I think is a great follow on. Mm-hmm. For lay readers, after reading Complexity, but it's just it, it's just really an eye-opening book. the 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 idea of emergent complexity has now been proposed as a physical law. I don't know if you saw that; it was just a month, two months ago. I missed that. There's a there's a paper in which a consortium of people from several different disciplines. Proposed that emergent complexity is not just—it's not just a thing that happens, but that it is a thing that will happen, hmm. given given certain kinds of conditions, which I just find very interesting as a proposal.
0: You're gonna have to look into that. That's fast. I wonder how they're expressing that yeah. mathematically.
1: Yeah, me too. Hmm. Yeah, I—I—I'm not remembering the details, but I remember reading you know, uh, I think it was a Science Daily article or something like that. And and they were talking about this. And I was like, oh yeah, there you go. That's a, <laughs> There's that emergent complexity again. And it there sure is an awful lot of it about. If it's not a physical law, then, you know, I wonder why it's happening so much. Yeah. Uh-
0: <laughs> it's a good, it's a great topic. And there are many, many other books out there on the topic mm-hmm. as well. And that one just was the one that, was my introduction to it
1: Mm -hmm. me too me too and i think it was one of the earliest kind of you know popular science books about complexity there's been quite a bit since Mm -hmm. and some of it has kind of gone down various philosophical rabbit holes that i don't necessarily agree (laughs) with you know it seems like every time there's something new in the 80s, we were talking about nothing but paradigms, right? And you had fritjof Kopper writing the Tao of physics and stuff like that. And the idea was that everything was all about paradigms. Mm-hmm. Well, now complexity and emergence is kind of a big deal. And there's a lot of conversation about that going on. Mm-hmm. So always something new to discover. Yeah. So Complexity by Mitchell Waldrop, W-A-L-D-R-O-P great book
0: and the first one i put on my list is probably the only one in here that people would think of as a quote-unquote pagan book mm. and at least on my list i don't know your whole list but that is earth path by starhawk mm-hmm. and the reason that this one there there's a lot to it but i think what was so impactful for me about this was that it brought together two different realms within my life that i hadn't seen as really being part of the same thing before so it had the pagan side which i was you yeah. know grew up pagan and around all of that stuff but i also grew up on a permaculture homestead and you know, northern New Mexico with all kinds of permaculture going on and, and all of that. And that book does a beautiful job of weaving together how those really aren't super separate and mm-hmm. tying into the, the systems thinking that's coming out of the emergence as well. And it was just, I thought quite, I really enjoyed it very beautifully written and with exercises in there. And, and it was just a, a nice combination for me which I think set me off in the direction of pretty shortly after that, you know, picking my major in college and going into the direction of becoming an ecologist came out of a lot of it out of reading that book and just the everything that was going on while processing all of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have that book and I've read it as well. And I really like Starhawk's approach in that there's so much pagan literature that's the woo stuff right it's and it's all even if it's very grounded in in reality which much of it is not even if it is it's tends to be oriented around the self and you know what this can do for you and how this can help you navigate your life all of which is important stuff right Mm -hmm. i mean and closing your eyes and going inwards
0: yes so much about going close your eyes go in and she talks about no, no, open your eyes, yeah, Right. expand yourself into the rest of this. Yeah. Yes.
1: Pay attention, learn to see, all that good kind of stuff. And there's this heavy implementation component, right? You know, we have these values. Well, how do we live those values? Well, here, here are some ways that we can live in service to the earth, that we can live lightly on the earth. Here are some ways that we can walk our talk. Mm-hmm. as pagans and i i really appreciate that starhawk lives locally to me mm-hmm. she lives in, in northwestern sonoma county and i see And then in a, san
0: francisco part-time I think. I think she's back and forth between the two or at least was for many years I, I
1: think she was for many years i'm not sure whether she goes down there anymore but of course she travels to you know read and all that kind of stuff a lot i'm sure but you know she's doing a permaculture farm in Sonoma County. And that's, you know, her understanding of, you know, being an earth oriented pagan person has a lot more to do with spades and shovels and rakes and things like that than it does necessarily with, you know, wands and ritual knives and all that kind of stuff. And I really appreciate that about her work. I think it's it's well grounded in, in reality in a way that I don't see in many other pagan writers that I appreciate.
0: Yeah, I found it. It was very, so this would, I would have been, you know, late teens at the time and just mm-hmm. found her to be a really great role model, hmm. really appreciated that. And actually, after reading the book, went out and did one of the earth activist training up there on, on her land and, and all of that. And it was really, it was just one, it was really cool to meet California, that mm-hmm. part of California, because I've been in Southern California before, but as, as you know, it's a totally different world. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool to to just meet that land and kind of be in that space and and to and be with that really grounded approach, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I think comes through in her writing. Uh, I've you know read some of her earlier stuff too, like the Spiral Dance, which I think was published you know several decades before and you can definitely 1st, see
1: 1979
0: yeah so you can definitely see and we were just looked up that the uh, earth path was 2005 so uh-huh. you know a pretty big gap
1: between those and you can definitely
0: see a, a change in evolution in the the approach that the author had
1: right well her it wasn't her first book but it was the first one that was the really- thing that she wrote as a thesis, an academic thesis, was Dreaming the Dark. Mm -hmm. And you can really tell that that's coming out of a very academic, idea-based sort of approach, even even though what she's writing about is a movement towards an embodied paganism, right? But I think 35 years of life experience, you know, after publishing The Spiral Dance and doing all the things that she's done, you know, led her to a place where it was time to say, okay, well, here's where I am now. Mm -hmm. And this is what I've learned. And here's how you can do it too. Yeah. And I've always appreciated not only her kind of implementation piece around the permaculture, but also her activism. Yeah. Her
0: bringing that all together that you can't separate any of that out. It's all connected. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, I enjoyed um, her fiction works as well. Uh, they weren't. I didn't put them on this list because they weren't. Uh, I didn't feel ch- changed from them, right? I enjoyed mm. reading them, and it, you know, the fifth sacred thing, and then there was a second one after. There's been a couple more after that, but it, they were. I really enjoyed them, and they were like, "Oh, this is cool," but but they didn't have quite the same impact. And for somebody else, they might, right? I think a lot of when. You read books it depends on what's going on in your life and what those particular ideas are and how do they mix in with the other ideas that you're experiencing
1: for sure and there's a lot of people out there who you know they they're kind of genre readers right they may read fantasy fiction and that's what they read right so you know reading something like the fifth sacred thing was a way to introduce people that may you know kind of narrow themselves to that sort of a thing which is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. to ideas and models for how the world can be different in ways that are very eye-opening and might drive them then to want to read some of her nonfiction stuff. Right. Which actually brings me to one of the books that I was going to talk about, which is also a fiction book, which is Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm -hmm.
2: Um,
1: Always Coming Home is a for one thing, it's just beautifully written she's she just has the most amazing command of language. It's a future anthropology mm-hmm. it's a it's a series of stories that overlap and interlink and are about a future culture in what is now the Napa Valley so one one set of mountains over from where i live um, which is a place that she spent a great deal of her time when she was a child and it's a vision for a culture of people who they live a very rich ritual calendar but they have technology they have computers and they have medical equipment and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff but they, they live in a clan-based society mm-hmm. that's just exquisitely beautiful to read about. And, you know, it's not like it's utopian. It's not perfect. But it's really amazing. There's a middle section in the book that contains things like recipes and stuff like that from the culture. And there was actually a, a tape, a cassette tape that came with the book full of songs from the culture as well. Wow. Okay. Uh, You can now actually download, I think online somewhere. If you like fiction at all, I really encourage you to read this book. It's just a beautiful vision. And of course there's an antagonist. There's a a hierarchical militaristic culture that, you know, based in the Sacramento Valley that makes its move against the people of, of, of the Napa Valley and how they contend with that you know is the plot tension in the in the interlocked stories but it's just it's very very beautiful and I really encourage our listeners to to read it
0: Mm, that sounds beautiful and we will include titles and authors in the show notes so don't worry about you know writing writing that down right now we will we'll put that link in there
1: and you know while I'm at it Ursula K. Le Guin is well worth reading, generally speaking, if you want visions of other ways of living. Mm -hmm. You know, her books like The Word for the World is Forest and The Dispossessed and just so many of them, even even some of her early short stories like The Orsinian Tales, they're just very humane and they're very thoughtful. And this is the woman who, when accepting a Lifetime Achievement National Book Award, gave a speech in which she said, well, you know, we all think, you know, we, we, we live in capitalism and it's everywhere and we think it's inevitable. Well, that's what they thought about the divine right of kings. You know, yeah. <laughs> humans, human systems can be changed by humans. Right. Which made a bit of a, of a kerfluffle, you know, <laughs> when she was just expected to be gracious. But she was out there talking about how art can change culture. Mm-hmm. and how our culture needs to be changed so mm-hmm. that was that was pretty amazing yeah
0: and she's got a pretty she's got a long list of titles too which is yeah. really nice that's something I especially when it comes to to fiction authors that where like when I find something I like I want I want to keep going with it I want yeah. more of it right yeah. and so she's got a, a long list of titles that you can get
1: into yeah so She's yeah. very famous for the Earthseed trilogy. Yes. Which she then expanded with a book called Tehanu which is just gorgeous. Mm. And and ardently feminist and just just a good 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 book. And then there's a set of short stories thereafter, a collection called The Other Wind. There's there's a lot of stuff. If you if you like her, you've got a, a rich vein to mine there. My next book actually was a fiction book
0: as well. And it's the only one that was a fiction book on here. And I'm just going to, it's from a trilogy. So it's really the whole trilogy, but it's Red Mars. So it's the Mars trilogy, which is Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm. And this one is, it's a sci-fi story about basically the first people to go to Mars, to live on Mars, and then... It follows several centuries um, of the terraforming of Mars, and then the spreading of humans throughout the solar system as well. And some people love Kim Stanley Robinson's work, and some people hate his work. He's kind of like one of those like love hate kind of like you know your kimchi or something like that, where like people really like it or don't. He definitely makes authors like Tolkien look like they. Are running at a fast clip (laughs) so one of the things I loved about his is his his descriptions of the geology are just detailed and beautiful and stunning Mm. but it was for me reading it was really influential in you know definitely choosing helping me with choosing some career path there's a lot of it that is is very very pagan it is never called that in there but there's some really pagan stuff in terms of the relationship with land and that was one of the things that got me about it was looking at the the big conversations because he's talking about he you know he's doing it from the perspective of of individuals and their lives that they're going through but he's really talking about big societal issues and the relationship that humans have and our responsibility to life is one of the themes that gets played with a lot and explored in different ways through different characters and perspectives. And it was just one of those those ones that just sits with me. I mean, it it's, was so important to me that my first daughter's, my first kid's name actually comes from that series. Mm. So that's been, you know, that's mm. kind of like my my book series would be the uh-huh. Red Mars series. And it's just, you know, beautifully written, I think. Wow. So
1: that sounds great. I've never read any Kim Stanley Robinson. So he's very, very
0: thought provoking. I I really like his work. But again, some people really don't. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, you know, sure. That's just how it is. Yeah. 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 And I have to apologize. Y'all might be hearing my kiddos in the background. They were they were told they were supposed to be quiet, but that's not that's not what kids do. They giggle and laugh and fight. So I apologize. I hope it's not coming through too much. Zoom usually filters that out, but I hope it's not too distracting. I'm not
1: hearing it much. I think think we're good. Okay. So the next book that I have moving away from, from fiction is a recent book, New York Times bestseller, and it's called Good Without God. And it's by the secular chaplain of the Harvard Divinity School, who's named Greg Epstein. And I have very mixed feelings about this book, but part of the way that it approaches its topic tells me something about the role of non-theists in our society. I think good without God is a very defensive phrase. It assumes mm-hmm. it assumes that there's something radical or thought provoking about the suggestion that without gods you can't be good. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a thesis the burden of which falls on theists to to prove. Right? You know the, right. there have been plenty of atheistic people that have been perfectly good people throughout the whole course of history. And and so, you know, some of some of what this book entails really just doesn't it's it's making excuses for things they don't need excuses made for them and a lot of it is kind of anecdotal reports of good people that were non-theists that did good things Mm -hmm. i hope that we can be moving beyond that but as long as there are people in pulpits all over the world banging on the lectern and saying that you know that you you're sinful and you you need god or you're you're really a bad person. I guess this is, you know, one of the fights we have to have. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting book. I, I suggest reading it. It, I think it sort of explains what his experience has been of what he has to say and talk about in the course of becoming this chaplain at, Harvard Divinity School. So who was he writing this book to? I think he was writing it generally to the American public. Okay. So
0: not specifically to the Christian or theist religious part of America, but to kind of to everybody?
1: Well, as I say, I think it's a bit defensive. And to me, that suggests that he is kind of trying to talk to people in other religious paths to sort of justify a godless approach to spirituality and to living mm-hmm. i personally i don't think we need justification i think we're you know, perfectly <laughs> perfectly justified in having the lives that we want to have and in believing what we do and in and particularly in having an evidence-based approach mm-hmm. to cosmology because an evidence-based approach to cosmology has done so many good things for humanity over time it seems like that's kind of the horse we should bet on <laughs> right
0: and that we don't necessarily have to be thinking about our cosmology in a traditional family with the dad is the boss and you do what dad says or else he's going to come home and thank you
1: right yeah the well, we've talked about this before, but the whole I, the whole parental model, I talk about this in my first book a little bit, the whole parental model of, of of the divine, of the sacred, right? The idea that we are children and that, you know, therefore we have to be disciplined and we have to be controlled and we have to have rules laid down for us. That whole model, I just think is garbage. I just don't yeah. think that has any basis in reality. And- The, what I prefer is spirituality with agency. Mm -hmm. You know, you are a person who is worthy of respect, whose uniqueness is worthy of celebration. And the, the fulfillment of who you are and your opportunity to express that is inherently of value and needs to be fostered. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just a much better model than you're sinful and we need to whip you into shape. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, that if I
0: may, that transitions beautifully to the next book that I have. Okay. Um, that idea, which it is going to sound like a little bit of a surprise at first, because it sounds like a, it is a parenting book. It's a book about parenting and about school, but it's and I I chose this one because. It was one of several books that I was reading at the time that all had kind of the same idea, Mm -hmm. but it's called Unschooled by Carrie MacDonald. And it really changed or challenged some of the just societally built in ideas I had about the relationship between adults and children. And by extension, simply between different individuals within our society. And that we don't really treat children like people Mm -hmm. in our society, right? They're on a different class. They don't have the same rights and the same respect. um, And we don't let them have agency in their own lives and i can i can hear arguments that immediately come up about well they don't know and we have to protect them and there's and there's a certain degree of of like needing to protect them mm-hmm. in the world you know you sure. do have to teach your toddler that the stove is hot and don't touch that stove right yeah. that is something that does that that needs to happen but it really really got me thinking about my role as a parent and with them but also with just other people that I interact with in life Mm -hmm. and it it just was kind of challenging that that's why I said that what you were saying goes into it really well it just challenges that whole model and to look at you know how do we really want to structure our society and interact with each other
1: yeah yeah I've I've heard and read a little bit about unschooling but because I don't have kids I don't I haven't really dived into it very far, but that the whole idea of children as possessions that need to be molded in order to fit as cogs into our capitalistic capitalistic society is really pretty ugly, in my opinion, especially because capitalism has demonstrated since its inception that it will throw away an entire population of people once it decides that it no longer has a use for them. So we don't owe it any loyalty. You know we and i'll I'll say that again because I think it's an important thing for people to hear. You do not owe capitalism your loyalty you don't yeah. own your you don't owe your employer loyalty. I mean, I work in the nonprofit sector, and I'm really passionate about the mission of the organization that I work for, or I wouldn't work there, but nonetheless, I have to understand that you know it is a business operating within the framework of of the nonprofit sector of the cap of capitalism upon which it depends. Mm-hmm. So, you know, keeping that very straight and understanding what my needs are and my interests are relative to that is very important. Yeah.
0: And I think it's important to challenge this idea that we have that our worth as people is based on our economic output. Oh yeah. And that's, I think that's really harmful.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the whole idea that your worth as a human being is related to your capacity to increase shareholder value is really pernicious. And it's easy for people to fall into that hole because people that are really good at creating shareholder value tend to get paid a lot. Mm-hmm. And so they they have more freedom, they have more security, they have more toys, and it's easy for them to lose track of the fact that they're not really better than anybody else. And, you know, I, I have a circle brother who was a senior engineer for for Apple and Microsoft and a you know bunch of companies, really like right up at the top of the pyramid in 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 both software and hardware engineering. And he talks about the golden handcuffs. Mm. You know, that you you know that at some level you agree to be subjugated um because the compensation is so high but the good news is that now he's pretty much living off dividends and not (laughs) having to work He he got
0: out that's nice yeah yeah
1: Yeah. and you know living in a straw bale house off the grid and just so it it allowed him to do that but yeah yeah
0: but there's a there's this promise that yeah you're gonna you're gonna just work really hard for all this time and then you're gonna get to your retirement and then and then you're gonna get to live
1: yeah and what's I, up with I, that that's like well i want to live now thank you <laughs> once, once everything hurts then you can live.
0: <laughs> also not to be too pessimistic but i don't think my generation or any of the ones underneath are retiring that sounds no. like that's not
1: i don't expect that's that not going to happen um, I, I, yeah not just my generation any yeah. prospect of that and you know there's a whole there's a whole invisible set of stories that are never acknowledged in our society you know there's the whole okay boomer thing well technically i'm a boomer i'm at the very end of the the baby boom and i've never been in a position to buy a house yeah or land i've never been you know and a
0: huge huge portion of this country and not just and you know we're talking about this from the perspective of of americans but it's not just us right like this right. Is, yeah yeah he, many of us you know that's not where we're at that's not the reality might be what is shown and talked about but that doesn't mean that's the reality that most of us are living with
1: right right and that leads me into the pernicious nature of advertising and (laughs) all the propaganda and blah 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 blah. but yeah anyway long story short (laughs) yeah well and Um,
0: real quick to circle back to the money thing i think that's something that we have to really watch out for in relationships too because mm-hmm. that's something that can come up a lot about people's value of how valuable are you in the relationship based on are you earning money or are you staying home? Like, are you just the house spouse? Or are you, you know, like those sorts of assumptions that we have. I think it's important to to examine those and challenge them. Yeah. And maybe you want to stick with them, right? Maybe you you examine it and you go, that works for me, but maybe not. So and yeah. same thing with the going back the relationship with with children and other members of our society.
1: Yeah. So. Yep, absolutely. There's a a truism that I've seen a lot about, you know, on a first date you can tell a lot, you can tell everything you really need to know about the person that you've gone out with by how they treat the the food server. Absolutely, yeah. And there's there is a lot to that. There really is. I mean, the kinds of people that are viewed as you know, as subservient in some way because they're working class. Mm -hmm. If, you know, if people, you know, are condescending or, or even rude or any of that kind of stuff, that's not really somebody you want to spend your time with.
0: Yeah. So maybe purposely go to the really busy place that you know that the that is understaffed <laughs> and see see how do they respond
1: ah the pressure test it's oh, always yes. a good one <laughs> well what was um, your next book did you have one my... i do um my next book is actually going back to starhawk again mm-hmm. this book was written by m maca nightmare who is a friend of mine and starhawk and it's called the pagan book of living and dying and I have to say that there was, sort of a, there was sort of a precursor to this book, which some listeners may know about. It was a big deal in the 1960s. It was called The American Way of Death by a woman named Jessica Mitford. And Mitford, was kind, of Miss, Mitford was kind of a muckraker. She was an investigative reporter, and she did this deep dive into the American funeral industry and how exploitative and destructive, and really unconscionable. A lot of the practices were at that time in the funeral industry, and a lot of that persists today, except of course now what we have is that the funeral industry is wrapped up largely by several large corporations, which operate these apparently little independent funeral homes, but they're all owned by the same big corporation. Mm So. This is a book about what your rights are, and it includes pagan rituals and things like that, prayers and blessings and all that kind of stuff. But it also explains what your rights are. You know, you don't have to use a funeral. You don't have to be embalmed. In fact, please don't. We we pump millions of gallons of carcinogenic formaldehyde into our water table every year because people are buried as pickles. And it makes it makes absolutely no sense. it so it talks about you know you you can go to the coroner's office and pick up the body yourself, and they will give you a, a license to transport human remains, which you'll need for your station wagon or van or whatever it is, and you can transport the body to your home. In some states, it's required that you dispose of the remains within three days if they're not embalmed. Mm -hmm. But you can have a viewing in your home and you can have, um, you know, you can have visitors over, you can have a wake, you can do a ritual, all that kind of stuff. You know, I've I've been to one death process where they bought a big cardboard coffin Mm -hmm. and we decorated it with felt tip pens. We we wrote Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff all over both the inside and the outside um, for the deceased. So you can be much more hands-on about a death and I think that's just a much healthier way to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The phobia that we have about death in this society and our our flinching inability to contend with the fact that we're mortal is very mm-hmm. unhealthy in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. It encourages people to do terrible things to their bodies and by trying to live forever. It's just this is a huge topic and maybe one, you know, when the fall rolls around, we'll talk about it more in terms of the funeral industry and stuff. Mm -hmm. But this book was a really good eye opener to me for an alternative path in, in how people can relate to their dead and to the dying process. So the pagan book of living and dying it's credited by Starhawk and M Maka nightmare and the reclaiming collective, but as I understand it, Maka actually wrote most of the book. Mm-hmm. So so there you have it. Very good book and a good reference book to me, like the Earth Path. I kind of and Circle Round, their book about children. Mm-hmm. I just tend to keep those books around for ideas and yeah so forth.
0: Yeah, Circle Round is a really nice one. It has there's a lot of the stories that they tell that are very, you know, deity centric yeah but there's a whole bunch of different activities and ideas mm-hmm. and I think it's a nice one for pagan parents there's not really a lot of of ones out th- I mean there's some books that are like but they they many of them are just so theistic so so <laughs> god-based about you know right. and then you know Bridget did this and yeah. And, you know, the mother maiden and crone did that. And, you know, not that those yeah. can't be useful frameworks, but they're just not what I'm into personally.
1: Right. So, well, and let me let me append to the end of your sentence there yet. Yet. Yes. Because we've talked before about how much value there could be in an atheist parents handbook or or some other kind of non-theist pagan parent book. I would really love to see that happen.
0: Yeah, me too. And I, well, that's a discussion for another time, but that's something that I'd (laughs) like to be involved
1: in. But well, yeah, for sure.
0: So the last one that I had on my list is Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Hmm. And this is one of those ones where when people hear the title, there can be some really strong emotional reactions to because it kind of sounds like he's suggesting that we should all throw out everything digital and you know don't use the internet and all of that but it's really not it's a very a very very thoughtful book about um, our relationship with the tools in our lives specifically the digital ones and it and it starts with some of the at the time very little research. There's been a lot more done in the last few years about the psychological impact of things like social media on our on us. Um, a lot of the research coming about out right now is about how it impacts teenagers and younger people, and it's it's intense, right? But what he talks about is really, really examining how these things influence our lives, Mm -hmm. and what is it that matters to us? What kind of life do we want to craft? And being very, very honest with ourselves about what tools are serving us and what ones are we serving, right? Are we engaging with something because it's been so well designed to capture our attention and we we are what's being our attention is what's being sold, or is it actually providing benefit to us? Uh-huh. And so, this is one of those ones that I have gone back and reread several times. Mm-hmm. The first time I read it, it was like, "Wow, this is really good. This is I'm interested in it," but it wasn't something I could really act on yet. Mm-hmm. And then coming back and then you know re looking at it, and really examining you know, what I want in life. And it's just been one of those ones that has some exercises and things that you can, that can guide you through this process. And has been very, very impactful in in, improving the quality, my quality of life Mm -hmm. and my relationship with everybody else in my life, because it's helped me to be much more present and intentional about, about my attention. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one that I, have on the list as was influential, but also one that I would definitely highly suggest
1: and recommend to people to check out. Great, I'll have to read that. I've I've heard of it, but I I haven't actually read it, so I I should pick it up. Yeah,
0: I and I like his stuff a lot. Overall, most of the stuff that that Cal Newport puts out, he's just a very thoughtful kind of, you know, seems like just a nice person. <laughs> mm-hmm. So nice. Yeah. And all of these are all available on an auto audible forms as well.
1: Uh-huh. So. Or in ebook form. So you can use your device to read it.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I chuckle because most of the time I have read some of them by hand, by but I, I end up listening to almost all of my uh-huh. books um, because oh. I just don't have the sitting down with a book in front of me is very difficult with the number of smaller creatures i have in my house whether they have sure. fur or not <laughs> they uh-huh. want to be between me and the book but when i'm listening to it it's a lot easier for me to be able to do to you know be able to be doing other things or
1: you know Uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. well i'm gonna bring us around full circle for my last book which is chaos by james glick oh i like uh, it
0: complexly com- complexity and chaos, and chaos. is our-
1: and chaos is about the rise of chaos mathematics. It's a it's a layperson's book, so you know it, it's not full of math itself. It'll give you a few formulas, you know, a few equations, but mostly it explains what chaos is. And chaos is that very creative phase in in reality between being frozen in stasis and being scattered into sheer random noise. Mm -hmm. And there are many places where conditions arise where that kind of creative explosion can happen. We see it when we look at pictures of galaxies. You know, you see the the bright star forming regions. Well, those are the places where the conditions have arisen properly so that chaotic processes can lead to emergent complexity, right? There's been a lot of talk about chaos and we we talk about fractals and we talk about strange attractors and all that good kind of stuff. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details about that now, but once you have read this book, you will start to see fractals everywhere. You will see that even though every leaf is unique, you can still recognize a leaf for what kind of plant it comes from and that mountains are all shaped in a particular way and that ripples on, on water are all shaped a particular way and waves. And that's why we are able now to create CGI special effects that are so persuasive because we have the math to replicate those kinds of chaotic effects. So chaos mathematics is a very powerful tool for emulating what actually happens in nature. It's very clear that a lot of what's going on here in the universe is chaotic. So really interesting book. It's another lay science book, as I say, came out. It's got to be the 80s now. It's a long time ago, but it's still a really good book. And I, I really encourage you to read it. Well, this is a good list. Yeah. I and I'm sure so. we
0: could probably come up with more if we if we kept thinking about it.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, for sure. You know, if you love books, there's always more books on the list. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was a great idea for us to do though. I think, you know, maybe we can visit this once a year or so and talk about new books and anything. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Things that we're that we're discovering. Mm. So speaking of books, I did want to put in a plug. That's my new book. Round We Dance, Creating Meaning Through Seasonal Rituals is coming out on April 8th. Mm -hmm. and We'll put a link in the show notes for where you can go to pre-order it from the Llewellyn book site, website. But this this is to the Atheopaganism book, kind of the implementation book as opposed to the Atheopaganism book being mostly about theory. The last section in the Atheopaganism book is about implementation of a religion called Atheopaganism or a spiritual path, whatever you choose to call it. But this is really about implementing those ideas. And so it's got rituals and recipes and craft projects and themes and color schemes and all that kind of stuff, all of which, of course, is optional and morphable by you, however you find it useful. But it's a it's a source book for a lot of ideas that I think people will find useful for their ritual practices.
0: Right. And do you talk a little bit about how people can change those more fit to fit themselves?
1: Oh, repeatedly. Yeah. yeah. I, I mentioned throughout the text, you know, it's it, it's not like red and green is necessary or or black and white e- even are necessarily the the snowy winter colors. Right. Mm-hmm. If you associate those, then go ahead and use them. If right. you associate purple and blue or or purple and orange with with the descent the winter solstice, which I don't know why you would, but maybe you would go ahead and use those colors. You know, whatever whatever you find meaningful is what you should be using in your ritual practice, not what somebody else told you was meaningful. Right. And the forward was written yes. by a friend of yours. Yeah. It was. The forward was written by Yucca. Yep, we are we are delighted to have both of our names on yet another book, which is exciting. Oh no, that's right. John Halstead did the Atheopaganism. He did, book, yeah. Didn't
0: he? He did. We didn't.
1: So I. You did the the layout. I helped
0: the with the layout. layout on that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I reformatted it. You did the layout, but then there was the whole shenanigans about which program. Oh right. Was being accepted, and so I redid it into InDesign and exported it for you right so yeah yeah way back and that's when we were starting to talk about doing this
1: podcast mm so yeah yeah I've always been very grateful to you for doing that because I don't have InDesign and my InDesign skills are medium so it would have been a very slow process I could have gotten it done but it would have taken a long time so There it is. And go check it out if you're interested. It comes up this week because I finally got a a galley proof. So I have an actual copy of the book marked that it's a proof, but still it's like in my hand, it's got the cover art. It's very cool. And it comes out on the day of the eclipse, right? Yes. April 8th. It comes out on April 8th, which is the day when any sensible person will be dashing to wherever the, the, solar eclipse is happening to check it out
0: yeah and get your glasses now everybody do not look at the sun without protection yes so there's some ways that you can look at it you know use pinhole cameras and things like that but really do not risk looking at the sun without the right protection because you can really hurt it's it's a wonderful amazing event but it's not worth your vision right so and you really can you can hurt yourself by looking at the sun but if you've got those eclipse glasses they're like 75 cents really like they're worth just just pick one up before they're out because that eclipse in the US alone is going to cross over 32 million people <laughs> <laughs> right and let alone how many people live within just an hour drive from it that's not even counting cuz it goes through it comes up through Mexico first and then into Canada so you should look at how many people it goes over altogether it's going to be even more than that yeah so, so you're there's a good chance you're one of those 32 million Or somebody nearby so
1: well and even if you're not in the in the path of totality you know people are still going to want to check it out i mean i i think it's 85 percent or something where i am maybe more
0: yeah every Um... every one of the 50 states will even alaska and hawaii will be able to see it to some extent it just won't be a total eclipse right for them yeah so yeah definitely super super amazing magical event if you can manage to see it so we'll talk more about it when we get closer though right you won't be able to stop me talking about it (laughs) (laughs) so all right this was a wonderful
1: discussion mark thank you thank you so much